the real lesson I think of January 6th is not just about what happened and how it happened and who planned and coordinated all that, but to understand that that's something that can happen again. The far right movement, the broad far right is diverse and has lots of sectors and different ideologies and everything, but they learn from each other. They adapt from each other's strategies and tactics within the larger scope, the far right more generally are all kind of moving towards similar political goals. It's incumbent upon you to do what you can to stand up to these various types of fascism. You can't refuse and resist fascism unless you have everybody working together. Welcome to episode 132 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. In today's episode, we are sharing an interview with journalist Teddy Wilson to discuss the January 6th Select Committee hearing, anti-abortion domestic terrorism, and the rise in anti-Semitism. Yep, it's a wide-ranging combo. You're going to want to hear it. But first, thanks to everyone who goes the extra step and rates and reviews on Apple Podcasts, shares, and comments on social media or YouTube. It helps us reach more listeners, and we read everyone. Of course we do. Here's some proof. Here is a tweet that I'm sharing. At Good Point Kathy wrote, fantastic episode. He made the terrifying reality clear. They want total domination and now SCOTUS is fully complicit. But we should just be patient through decades of this. Hell no. Fight back or I'll split the nation. I ain't living under their theocracy. Thanks, Good Point Kathy. If you want to know more about the episode that she's talking about and who he is that makes this terrifyingly clear, you're going to want to listen to our interview from last week with Andrew Seidel. So go back, listen to last week's episode. And after listening to today's episode, go help us find more people who want to refuse fascism by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts and encouraging your friends and family who listen to do the same. Subscribe, follow, so you never miss an episode. And of course, continue all that sharing and commenting on social media. Before we get to this week's interview, we have to talk about where we are right now as this fascist movement slams the accelerator. On January 6th, this fascist mob stormed the Capitol. They shouted, where's Nancy? With plans to murder her and Vice President Mike Pence. Conspiracy theories and cries of a stolen election continue to be the litmus test for GOP leadership. The mass fascist movement has hardened in the wake of their January 6th coup attempt. Fascist initiatives, as we've discussed frequently, are continuing to advance, restricting voting, immigration, and abortion across the country. It is this fascist movement attacking trans minors, like in Florida, where this week the state's medical board viciously banned gender-affirming care for minors. It is the fascist movement storming school board meetings, threatening teachers they slander as, quote-unquote, grooming their children. Our co-initiator, Andy Z, aptly commented in one of our panels prior to 
the coup attempt, that, quote, a huge section of America is completely unhinged from reality and fervently believe their alternate fact-free reality as morally superior and existential for their lives. The destruction of truth is a key factor in the forging of a fascist space, a fascist leader, and fascist rule. We have lived it for four years, and it's been metastasizing for 40, end quote. According to a new Pew Research Center survey, 45% of Americans say the U.S. should be a quote-unquote Christian nation. According to Capitol Police, in the five years since Trump was elected in 2016, the number of recorded threats against members of Congress increased more than tenfold. Where we are right now, a fascist ex-president who led a violent, lethal, failed coup continues to walk free to be GOP frontrunner and to hold rallies where he threatens journalists with torture and rape to gleeful applause from his cult followers. An all-sided effort at voter intimidation, to be clear, all-sided, but all sides of the Republic Fascist Party, is underway, emanating in large part from key leaders of the January 6th insurrection. Trump lawyer and coup plotter John Eastman spoke earlier this month at a summit of prospective poll watchers and vote challengers, inciting election deniers to demand access to polling places and menace voters. This was at one of a number of summits being coordinated in part by the RNC itself. Meanwhile, Steve Bannon called on Alex Jones loyalist InfoWars listeners to become poll watchers and fascist armed vigilantes have already been seen stationed outside of early voting locations in Arizona. And it is in this context that in the early hours of Friday, October 28th, a man broke through the back entrance of the Pelosi residence in San Francisco, screaming, where is Nancy? He attacked 82-year-old Paul Pelosi with a hammer, fracturing his skull, and attempted to tie him up before the police arrived. His goal was to assassinate the third-in-command of an administration that he believes is his political enemy, an existential threat. This 42-year-old seems to have traveled the crusty, hippie-to-QAnon fascist pipeline, and blogged the horrific, mind-numbing journey over the past decade, most recently posting vile anti-LGBTQ content and pro-Hitler Infowars-style screeds involving aliens and blood libels. Time is running out for us, the people, to confront the reality. We are dealing with a fanatical and weaponized fascist movement. They are emboldened and battle-tested and only becoming more vicious. And they are not going to stop until they have it all, with the full horror that represents, unless we stop them. Trump incited, facilitated, and championed the coup. The Republic Fascist Party called the storming of the Capitol legitimate discourse. The GOP is the party of the big lie of Q of replacement theory. And the fascist point in all of this isn't just to get elected or pass their policies. Of course it is that. But even more, their goal is to turn the state apparatus into a qualitatively more brutal, repressive apparatus to thrust oppressed people, Black folks, immigrants, LGBTQ people, women, into an even more subordinate position in society and violate the rule of law wherever they please, even more violently, viciously repressing any challenge to their rule. This is a fascist party that is immune to shame or reason. It is a movement that is being normalized as people talk about the midterms like they're a normal election, as the Republic fascists have already, with speed and ferocity, profoundly shredded the norms, changed the rules, and destroyed lives. And we got to get real. The Democratic Party won't stop this nightmare. Trump, 
fascist Fox News, and the Republic Fascist Party have branded them as enemies and traitors, literally threaten them with death, try to assassinate them. Yet the Democratic Party consistently pulls to try to work with them, conciliate with them, collaborate with them, treat them as a legitimate party, and this election as a normal election. For instance, it's highly unlikely that Biden will deliver a speech tomorrow where he walks people through, when I say a MAGA movement was semi-fascist, this is what I meant, and displays an enlargement of the pictures of Paul Pelosi's skull being hammered. The Democrats are more willing to live within and coexist with an outright fascist form of rule than to risk open confrontation with fascist forces. Fascism must be resolutely opposed, actively resisted. There can be no reconciliation with fascism except on the terms of the fascists. And we've got fascism on full display, and the Democrats refuse to, and I would argue, cannot actually fight this the way it needs to be fought in order to actually defeat it politically, whether or not they can eke out an electoral tit-for-tat. One of the most insidious problems in the cultural conception of this moment is the individualism and individualization of these horrors. That Musk is a problem. That Kanye West is a problem. That Mitch McConnell is a problem. That the guy who attacked Paul Pelosi is a problem. They are. But the conception that each is to be dealt with individually and ahistorically that is a problem. Because in reality, these are all part of an enmeshed fascist onslaught within a society that we are all part of. And all of these threads travel directly through January 6th, which no one with any power has been held accountable for. We got here in part because of this fidelity oath of accommodation and conciliation with fascists and refusal to even call them fascists. And in all accounts from the media and Democratic Party mouthpieces, the story of the attempted assassination of Nancy Pelosi is minimized from the fact that this was a repeated assassination attempt on the third in line of succession to simply a crime in some quote-unquote both sides escalation of rhetoric. Beyond the media portrayal, this government minimized the fascist threat so much so that it seems there isn't security at the Pelosi's home. In our first call to act in 2017, we wrote, quote, fascism is a strong word. It is a very serious thing. It has direction and momentum that must be stopped before it becomes too late. Fascism foments and relies on xenophobic nationalism, racism, misogyny, and the aggressive reinstitution of oppressive, quote unquote, traditional values. Fascism feeds on and encourages the threat and use of violence to build a movement and come to power. Fascism, once in power, essentially eliminates traditional democratic rights. And we went on to say that if you work with fascists, you normalize the road to horror. You cannot try to, quote unquote, wait things out. Those who lived through Nazi Germany and sat on the sidelines looking on as Hitler demonized, criminalized, and eventually rounded up one after another became shameful collaborators with monstrous crimes. Don't conciliate, don't accommodate, don't collaborate. And that was 2017. And it is the trifecta of conciliation, accommodation, and collaboration that continues to shield this fascist movement against the people rising up to politically defeat them. In today's interview, we discuss the rising and raging anti-Semitism. We just have to mention the muskification of Twitter with racist, anti-Semitic, and homophobic tweets surging once the acquisition took effect. I went in to quote Wajar Ali, who remarked in his article on the Musk takeover, quote, 
the world's richest troll, who is beloved by white nationalists, just assumed control of Twitter, a digital town square that is used and abused to influence culture and politics, despite the likelihood that the social media platform will now openly welcome hate mongers and conspiracy theorists. It is imperative for those dedicated to truth and democracy to stay, keep tweeting, and not cede the ground to fascists, end quote. I agree with Wajat's basic stance here, the refusal to cede this ground to fascists, but this must be part of a movement much larger than Twitter, one where social media becomes a tool of a mobilized people with enough vision to at least see a world beyond this fascist threat. With that, here is my interview with Teddy. Today we are welcoming back on journalist and researcher Teddy Wilson. Teddy's Radical Reports is a Substack newsletter that provides research, analysis, and intelligence on the radical right. Welcome back, Teddy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. It's a real pleasure to be back on. I mainly wanted to get your input and analysis around anti-abortion domestic terrorism because we touched on it last time. But you had a lot more to say and you have a lot of background in that area. So I wanted to loop back to it. But I did want to give you an opportunity to speak about the January 6th committee hearings that just wrapped up. Were there any things that you think that people of conscience that are concerned about the fascist threat in the United States any key highlights or takeaways that you think people need to be paying attention to in light of that hearing wrapping up? I would say, first of all, that I think the way that the select committee wrapped up their public hearings, I think really succinctly highlighted kind of the main points of the investigation and really painted a picture of all of the events that led up to the January 6th insurrection. I think they did a really good job of building a case, almost like a prosecution, essentially. I thought it was really compelling. I think what people should be concerned about is the consequences of this upcoming midterm election. Right? Because if the Republicans gain back the majority in the House, if they gain back majority in the Senate, any of these investigations into January 6th insurrection will pretty much be eliminated and halted. The committee is under a lot of pressure to put out essentially a final report about what happened. And I think we're expecting to see that from the committee sometime before the end of this year. While it was important that the committee decided to subpoena former President Donald Trump, the likelihood that that subpoena is actually enforced is extremely unlikely. Whatever happens with the midterm elections will determine what happens with the committee going forward and what happens with investigations into January 6th. Final point I will just make, the importance of January 6th and the importance of the work that the committee is doing and also countless investigators and researchers that have worked for the committee, some of which I know and have talked to over these last several months have done a tremendous amount of work to investigate this. One of the conclusions that people should understand about all of this work is that it can happen again and not just in D.C., not just at the Capitol, but I think people should have a real concern about these kinds of events happening at the state level, at a state capitol, or a school board meeting. That's the real lesson, I think, of January 6th, is not just about what happened and how it happened and who planned and coordinated all that, but to understand that that's something that can happen again. People should really consider that over the coming months and years as a real threat to small-D democracy. 
that is a really important wake up call for people who have not recognized that yet. And I would say that it's been said before by other guests in many ways, their coup never ended. It's continued and it's continued by the fact that we have a slew of election deniers um, who are running for positions of power. You have people like Carrie Lake who are saying, you know, they're not going to concede a loss. This is ongoing and it's continuing. We should really definitely heed your warning. I wanted to shift the conversation slightly while still thinking about what we often call on the show, the fascist ground troops. And I was wondering if you could help us understand the overall picture when it comes to these fascist ground troops, that anti-abortion base that is willing to inflict violence to enforce their program. What are these people doing these days? Are they no longer a threat because in so many areas they're winning or is that not true? And what danger do those forces play in this new post-Roe landscape? Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe in the Dobbs decision, the anti-abortion movement has found itself in a crossroads, essentially. Even before the court's decision overturning Roe, there was a lot of debate within the anti-abortion movement about how they should proceed if and when Roe was overturned. Post-Roe, we find ourselves in an interesting situation where essentially about half of the states are either have banned abortion or are moving towards banning abortion. And then in another half of the states have either already protected reproductive rights or are moving towards solidifying protections for reproductive rights. Within the anti-abortion movement, I think there is a celebration of the overturning of Roe. There's some victorious feelings around state lawmakers in various states, both passing new laws, heavily restricting abortion or completely banning abortion. And there's also been you know, state laws that have been revived that were previously unenforceable due to Roe v. Wade. But I think there is a developing understanding within the anti-abortion movement. And this is a movement that seeks to end legal abortion full stop. In every state, they want a federal ban on abortion with no exceptions, right? That's their clear goal. It's unambiguous. And I think they see that they have arguably a larger challenge ahead of them than they faced in overturning Roe in attempting to either pass federal legislation to ban abortion or to attempt to restrict abortion and eventually ban abortion in states that have already protected abortion rights. There is some growing frustration within the anti-abortion movement about that, as they are seeing states like California and New York and other places solidify abortion rights in those states. You also see other interesting things happening, say, in New Mexico. So where I live in Texas, abortion has been, for all intents and purposes, completely banned. New Mexico has always been one of those outlier states that has not just protected abortion, but has really protected the right of pregnant people to access abortion throughout later stages of pregnancy. It's one of those few states where if a woman is pregnant and she's 22 weeks pregnant, all of a sudden finds out that there's a fetal abnormality or that she's at risk for death because of her pregnancy. New Mexico is one of those few states where pregnant people have been able to 
to travel to and get later term abortion care. Now there's a process of New Mexico building additional reproductive health care clinics and abortion clinics on the border of Texas so that pregnant people in Texas can have an easier time accessing abortion care and other types of reproductive health care that they may need. It's been interesting to watch how both the anti-abortion movement and the reproductive health rights and justice movement respond to the current moment. Now, to get down into what you were getting at with your question about the more radical elements of the anti-abortion movement, the extremist elements of the anti-abortion movement, that is part of the anti-abortion movement that was never satisfied or on board with the goal of overturning Roe v. Wade. That part of the movement always thought that that was essentially a half measure. There are parts of the anti-abortion movement, particularly these so-called abolitionists, that believes that states should have just essentially ignored the Supreme Court and ignored the Roe v. Wade precedent and banned abortion and enforced it. They are much more radical in their beliefs and ideology and goals. They are similar in a way to the elements within kind of the white supremacist movement that subscribe to this accelerationist ideology, which is, for those that may not be familiar, it's this idea that using the political process to establish a white ethnostate is too slow and cumbersome and it will never work. The accelerationist ideology says we need to create massive amounts of violence to cause a race war, and then we can get the white ethnostate we want. There's a similar kind of ideology within the anti-abortion extremist movement of pushing the legal limits and ignoring the courts, ignoring federal law, this idea that states are sovereign and states' rights, and they should be able to, to enforce whatever laws they want. And so that's one of the divides within the anti-abortion movement. They do pose a threat. You might think that because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and because so many states are banning abortion or severely restricting access to abortion, that those parts of the movement wouldn't be as active right, or wouldn't be as motivated. But I think those parts of the movement see states like California and New York strengthening abortion rights and other states where abortion may be restricted, but it's not banned. And there's some protections for access in places like, say, Montana, for example, or even in Florida and a few other places that might be kind of in red states and conservative states, but there's still some access to abortion you will see that those extremist fringe of the anti-abortion movement will be motivated by that because that's the last frontier for them, especially in deeply blue states. There's no real possibility for political change for them there, right? There's no way that they could really use the electoral and legislative system to restrict access to abortion or ban it. That's where you see the possibility of real world violence, where you see some kind of parallels to this within other elements of the far right extreme movement, the more violent elements, is when you look at the locations where we've been seeing far-right extremist violence, a lot of that has been taking place in places that people might generally think of as blue states or progressive areas of the country. Right? There's been a lot of far-right extremist violence in Oregon, for example. There's been a lot of far-right extremist violence in California. There's been a lot of far-right extremist violence in Illinois and throughout New England. 
just because you're in a blue state and you feel like your reproductive freedom is protected, that doesn't mean that far-right violent extremists aren't going to be targeting you in those states. In fact, I think it makes it more likely that we'll see violent attacks in places like that. People need to remember where one of the last incidents of anti-abortion extremist violence was, was in Colorado which is not exactly a conservative state. There is a real pocket of conservatism there in Colorado Springs, but the state as a whole is not conservative at all. It's become much more progressive over the last decade. I just really appreciate the broad view and breakdown. I think that the emphasis that you put on what overall the anti-abortion movement is going for in terms of an all-out ban on abortion is really important that people grasp that they are refusing to accept a patchwork of sanctuary states or any safe spaces. They're refusing that. This is a movement that does have fascist violence at its core. It is a movement that has bombed clinics, that has terrorized doctors, patients, that has murdered doctors and staff for decades and that they aren't going to stop until they totally obliterate this. At the same time, I think it's important that people recognize how much damage has already been done. And that for, I think the number now is over 22 million women of reproductive age cannot access an abortion in their state. That is violence by the state. It is an act of violence when your body is hijacked. And I think that for all people who can become pregnant, this is a huge, huge concern and it is having real world implications right now. And I just wanted to add the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of where they're going in addition to the nationwide ban that you brought up. I think that we're going to be seeing more things similar to what Georgia implemented around seeking to codify fetal personhood and what the implications for criminalization could be for people who miscarry or induce their own abortions. Those are things that I've been thinking about. We could probably do an entire another podcast about the criminalization of pregnancy and what that looks like. As I was talking about that kind of broad view, I was bringing up how it compares to other parts of the far-right movement. And I think one thing that people should keep an eye on and understand is that the far-right movement, the broad far-right, is diverse and has lots of sectors and different ideologies and everything, but they learn from each other, they adapt from each other's strategies and tactics. Right now, something that people need to keep an eye on is the kind of current strategy and tactics that we're seeing used by the far right to attack and target the LGBTQ community, particularly the trans community. The strategy of targeting hospitals or other healthcare facilities or schools or individual doctors that provide you know, gender-affirming care or that are welcoming and affirming of various people within the LGBTIQ community, and then targeting them with online harassment, which has led to bomb threats and other threats of violence against various people from teachers to doctors to healthcare workers. You know, and that's been very effective. And we've seen these far-right pundits and social media influencers, people like Matt Walsh and Christopher Rufo really weaponize this and really terrorize the LGBTIQ community. There's lots of other parts of the far-right that are watching how successful that is, 
people should be prepared to see far-right, violent, extremist elements of the anti-abortion movement utilize that kind of same strategy. People should expect that and think through how to counter that and be prepared for it, because I think it's coming. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. That's really important, and I appreciate you bringing that in. And isn't there overlap, would you say, between those who are vilifying and terrorizing parents who are taking their children to care, the doctors who are caring for them, and those who are on the front lines of the anti-abortion movement aren't in many ways those similar people? There are definite similarities between various far-right actors as far as their ideology and who they target. Where I would say there is the most overlap between say, far-right, violent extremists within the anti-abortion movement and, say, white supremacist violent actors is on those fringes. Kind of an example of this is centered within the Pacific Northwest. That has been an area that has been particularly a fruitful ground for various types of extremist movements in places like northern Idaho, eastern Oregon, and eastern Washington have been kind of a central area for various types of extremist movements groups like Abolish Human Abortion, which is an extremist group, or even the Army of God, which is a violent extremist part of the anti-abortion movement, which has been around for 30 or 40 years. They have had connections with white supremacist extremists, adherence to Christian identity. And there's even been connections between some of these anti-abortion groups and the Proud Boys, you know, that right wing, essentially street gang. And a lot of that has happened within the Pacific Northwest, that area where we've seen these various groups and far-right actors interconnect and communicate and then sometimes become allies for various things. Within the larger scope, the far-right more generally are all kind of moving towards similar political goals. You do see more of a kind of a specialization. A lot of folks that are involved in the anti-abortion movement tend to focus only on opposition to abortion, right? They may be personally also vehemently against LGBTIQ rights. They may be against racial justice. They may share a lot of commonality with other far-right actors, but there does tend to be kind of a, a singular focus on whatever their project is. I think where you see the most kind of overlap is within the far-right and right-wing media ecosphere where you see people like Matt Walsh and others like Christopher Rufo that are attacking multiple different marginalized communities. So it's somewhat kind of complex and complicated with regards to how all these elements of the far right can sometimes fit together, but they are definitely all moving towards similar and shared goals. There's just not the same kind of tension within the far right, or even kind of the mainstream right, as there is on the left and in the progressive movement that there can be. There's just far more tension between various parts of the progressive movement with regards to whether it's people pursuing climate change goals or people pursuing gun safety laws, people looking to push the racial justice movement or advocate for reproductive justice, whatever it is, while they are often shared goals, there's just a lot less of the same kind of automatic cooperation among the left. There's so much competing for limited resources and limited money and funding on the left. 
that's one of the things that irritates me most about kind of the mainstream media discourse about the differences between the left and the right political spheres is there's often a tendency among the mainstream media to not just do the this and that, not just one side says this and the other side says that, but to think that there's an equation there between what happens on the left and what happens on the right. They're just vastly different. And sometimes by a degree of magnitude, for example, like the right wing media ecosphere, the Daily Caller or the Daily Wire or all these other podcast networks, there is nothing comparable to that on the left. There just isn't. That's one of the problems I think folks that aren't as familiar with with how the right works, there's a, that tendency to compare and there just isn't a good comparison there. It's just not. It's just really different. To kind of close out this part of our conversation, I wanted to share a thought that I've been thinking about and just get your opinion. It's been over a week now since Biden said this. He basically said that one of the first things he'd do if more Democrats won elections in November is to codify Roe. And I have to say that I think this is just so rich given the decades they've had to do so. Thousands have been terrorized this summer. And some of you, some women have even been arrested for now illegal abortions. And this is to me coming way too late. But also, why in the world should we think that they would actually do this when no one is predicting that they'll have more than 60 votes in the Senate and they still won't overturn the filibuster? I just was wondering what your thoughts are on this possibility. I'm not a political analyst. Take whatever I say with a grain of salt. But to me, if it sounds like anything, it sounds more like political signaling. I think you're absolutely right when you point out that essentially they've had a few decades to codify Roe. And there's also just the political reality of the near impossibility of codifying Roe kind of with the current political makeup of Congress. From what I can tell, it does seem like the issue of abortion as a motivating factor for folks voting in the upcoming midterm election has waned a bit on people's minds because it's been several months now since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And I think folks have a difficult time kind of maintaining a certain level of anger about things like that. Not that these aren't important issues, but it's easy to transition to caring more about inflation and the economy and uh, all these other issues that people are having to deal with in their day-to-day lives. So yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And I think there's also a significant part of me that just thinks that this is par for the course, that the Democratic Party and even kind of more broadly, the progressive movement in a whole has often been quick to throw marginalized communities under the bus for political expediency. You probably remember hearing similar arguments about this, like if the Democrats can just, you know, moderate on abortion, come to come some kind of compromise, then maybe they can get something else done on gun control or climate change or what have you. I think the the history of what we've seen from the Democratic Party, at least over the last 20 or 30 years, has been if we have to give in on abortion rights, if we have to give in on immigrant rights, if we have to give in on rights for the LGBTIQ community, whatever marginalized community we have to throw under the bus to get some kind of milk toast corporate legislation passed, we're fine with doing that. And so from kind of my cynical point of view, that it just seems like par for the course on what, what happens in our current democratic politics. Thanks for sharing your perspective. I think it's helpful. And I think that there is a lot to unpack in terms of 
why and how we've allowed this to become so normalized, the attacks on abortion, that is. And there are many examples of other things that we've seen this happen to. And it's like, how many times are we going to do the yesterday's outrage that sent us fuming becomes, oh, this is just how politics are to people not being able to imagine people even having the right to abortion. That keeps me up at night. Today, October 27th, marks four years since the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh was attacked, where 11 people were killed and six were injured. This took place the morning of October 27th, 2018. The synagogue since then has remained closed to the public. And there has been a rise in anti-Semitic rhetoric in the past several weeks, comments from a range of public figures, including Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. They've sparked concern about implications of real world violence. Trump saying things like, quote, no president has done more for Israel than I have. U.S. Jews have to get their act together and appreciate what they have in Israel before it's too late, end quote. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on the discourse around the anti-Semitism? Is there a rise that we should be paying attention to? And what danger do you see posed in the elevation of such rhetoric? And is there a connection to real world violence in addition to the harm posed by overt anti-Semitism being platformed? The discourse around Kanye West anti-Semitic comments has been varied from looking at him as kind of a clownish figure that he's had a history of making outlandish statements over the past several years. There is a part of the discourse that tends to view it more within that kind of prism. There has been some interesting and insightful commentary on his statements and seeks to unpack it a bit because there's a lot there to really chew on. One good piece that I would recommend folks read was published in the Washington Post by Karen Atata. And I'll just quote from the way she ended the piece. I only wish we could cancel the rabidly racist white men in our culture and politics just as we've done for an ignorant Black rapper who makes really ugly shoes. It's a great piece as a, in a whole to read. I think it's important. It really kind of delves more into it from the perspective of a Black woman. So I think that's a good piece for people to read. Also, Talia Levin, who is the author of Cultural Warlords, who has spent years studying anti-Semitism and white supremacist rhetoric online. She wrote also a great piece in Insider that I would recommend people go read. So I think the kind of discourse around Kanye West anti-Semitic comments has kind of been varied. Everybody kind of has a take on it, but most of the takes that I've seen have been kind of surface level. There's not been a real unpacking of the things that he has said and why they are anti-Semitic, or like how he is using these anti-Semitic tropes. I think partly because some of what he said takes a while to unpack some of the stupidity that is within there before you can get down to the anti-Semitic tropes. As far as the rising amount of anti-Semitism that we've seen and how that translates to real world violence, that is real. Like I'm someone that 
as a part of publishing my newsletter at Radical Reports, I'm constantly monitoring various types of extremist activity, particularly violent extremist incidents across the country, motivated by various parts of the far right. Everything from the militia movement to the white supremacist neo-Nazi movement to explicit anti-Semitism coming from various kind of neo-Nazi groups. One data point, the Anti-Defamation League, which tracks all these various types of anti-Semitic incidents around the country. You know, we're coming to the end of October. There's already been more anti-Semitic incidents this year than there was the entirety of the previous year. So I think we're coming up on 300 specific anti-Semitic incidents of Nazi propaganda or violent targeting of Jewish individuals or organizations. There is just, from a numbers perspective, more anti-Semitic incidents this year than there was last year than there was the previous year. There's been an increase over the last three or four years, especially since 2016. And I would say as someone that monitors this and tracks what is happening, I can just look at what happened this week, not just in response to Kanye West. There has been some real-world consequences from the statements made by Kanye West, in addition to this neo-Nazi group that hung anti-Semitic white supremacist banners over the freeway in Los Angeles, the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles extended an invitation to Kanye West to come visit the museum and maybe get educated. Since that became public knowledge, the Holocaust Museum has been targeted with violent uh, threats by neo-Nazis and white supremacists, both online and in real world. So the museum has had to respond to that. But in other places, there's been even more. So there's been a number of anti-Semitic incidences in Tempe, Arizona, so much so that the mayor of the city had to speak out about it and talk about how they were going to respond to that. In North Carolina, over the last couple of weeks, there's been hundreds of anti-Semitic white supremacist neo-Nazis flyers that have been distributed in several towns all over the state of North Carolina. A few other cities around the country, there's been incidents of either uh, protest or propaganda from various neo-Nazi groups being spread in neighborhoods, particularly. And of course, there's been um, violent threats that have been targeted at Jewish houses of worship specifically in response to the anniversary of the shooting in Pittsburgh. So that's all just this week. So there's not just evidence from a data standpoint as far as how much there has been, but just looking anecdotally around the country about what's going on, there's a lot of evidence that shows that this is increasing. One of the things about anti-Semitism that I think people that don't follow extremist movements in the far right or particularly kind of the white supremacist movement, thing that people don't necessarily tend to understand is how critical anti-Semitism is to building kind of a cohesive ideological structure for those. White supremacists, yes, they target all kinds of minority and marginalized groups. They are anti-Black, they're anti-immigrant, many of them are even anti-Catholic. There's been more and more of them that have targeted the LGBTIQ community, particularly the trans community. But where anti-Semitism typically fits in is that it's their explanation for who is behind what they view as the dilution of the white race. That's why you see them blaming 
Jews and not necessarily powerful Jews. Like they target any Jewish person online because they view them as the conspirator behind all of everything that they hate. And it's something that they take particular umbrage with because for most Jewish people, for most people of the Jewish faith, particularly in the United States, they can pass as white. I mean, I've heard people say this that I've known that have talked to me about kind of living as a Jewish person in America, you're white until people find out you're a Jew. When you read white supremacist neo-Nazi rhetoric online, I think that's one of the things that they hate the most about Jews is their ability to pass as white. Kind of a phrase you hear is a race traitor, essentially. That's what I think people need to understand about how insidious anti-Semitism is, is because it's not just targeting Jewish people out of hatred. It's also they are built into the DNA of the white supremacist movement's ideology. And that gives them a cohesive reason, quote unquote, to hate every other marginalized community. It's definitely a rising problem. And then when people like Kanye West or Trump or anyone with a large reach and a large audience makes anti-Semitic statements and doesn't receive immediate pushback, it's going to inspire more anti-Semitism and it's going to lead to more real world violence and targeting of people of Jewish faith. I wouldn't say that people should try to understand white supremacist ideology or thinking in any kind of logical way because it falls apart as soon as you apply logic to it. But there's white supremacists online cheering Kanye West for making these anti-Semitic comments and kind of repeating their kind of talking points about how they talk about Jewish folks. That's where you see where anti-Semitism trumps anti-Blackness in a way because it's kind of the glue that holds it all together. As much as we talk about Kanye, which we should, because people have been unleashed and emboldened by those statements being so platformed, let's not lose sight of Tucker Carlson and others who gave him endless airtime and who have said the same thing. When Kanye was invited to go to the Holocaust Museum, he said, not Planned Parenthood is my Holocaust museum. There's also a direct connection there between anti-Semitism, white supremacy, and anti-abortion. I won't go into it in detail, but if folks are interested, I suggest reading the work of Dr. Carol Mason, who's a professor at the University of Kentucky. She's written a book about the anti-abortion movement. It's all about the apocalyptic narratives of the anti-abortion movement. And she's done a lot of work in connecting white supremacy and anti-Semitism within the anti-abortion movement. There's a lot of evidence there. Everything going back decades in which the far right portrayed abortion doctors as caricatures of Jewish doctors in cartoons. So there's a definite connection there. So yeah, once again, I recommend if folks are interested in kind of reading more in depth of that, check out the writings of Dr. Carol Mason. We'll include it in the show notes. I would say another thing to mention about the anti-Semitism. You often see Republicans and folks on the right, there's a kind of standard deflection that they do. There is some whataboutism where they often bring up insensitive or even anti-Semitic remarks made by people on the left, whether it's Democratic politicians or other progressive activists. And there's that false equivalence they make between unconditional support of the state of Israel and anti-Semitism. And I think there's an important distinction to make there, right? You can make thoughtful critiques and criticisms 
of the policies of the state of Israel without being anti-Semitic, right? There's a distinction there. You can definitely level criticisms on the state of Israel and how they have treated Palestinians and the de facto apartheid state without being anti-Semitic. There's a difference. And I think Republican politicians have exploited that constantly to deflect from any criticisms of anti-Semitism. What you always, always, always see whenever any Republican politician is criticized for any kind of possible anti-Semitism is, I am a standfast supporter of Israel, which is not the same thing <laughs> as not being anti-Semitic. There's a lot of Jewish folks in America that think to themselves like, I'm an American, I'm not an Israeli. What you're saying makes no sense to me. Uh, that's important to identify too, is kind of the deflection. And then lastly, I'll just say, you mentioned Tucker Carlson. And in some ways, what he says, I think is worse. And the way it's worse is because he's saying it in a suit and tie on television and presenting it as this mainstream political discourse. He's saying these awful, racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, transphobic things, but he's saying it as though he's just a respectable political commentator. And I think that goes to embolden everyone else and further kind of radicalizes the right wing when that kind of rhetoric is allowed to fester like that. He may not be saying it in a way that sounds more outrageous because he's saying it in a more polished kind of rhetoric, but because of who he is and the platform he has and the way he's saying it, in a way it's even more dangerous, I think. Yeah, and he's also saying many of this exact same things. He also chose to run anti-Semitic interviews. That's a production choice. And it was not met with any kind of, I'm sharing this interview because I'm going to debunk it, which, okay, maybe I still think would be platforming hate, but maybe there's a justification for it. But that wasn't what was going on. It's the same type of way, whether you're talking about a Tucker Carlson or you're talking about a Doug Mastriano. These are people going for elected office who are running on an overt platform of anti-Semitism. Even if people say they may not win, okay, you're still talking about a huge section of people that are giving this a thumbs up and that should frighten everyone. And so whether it's Kanye or Farrakhan or Marjorie Taylor Greene or <laughs> Trump, whoever it is that's amplifying, promoting anti-Semitism, they are doing it as part of a profoundly reactionary, in many of these cases, straight up fascist discourse and program. And these views, these programs, they need to be exposed. Teddy, you were talking about broken down for people. If there's confusion about what these are about, then they need to be firmly opposed. I want to just thank you again for coming on the show, for sharing your expertise, your insight, your perspective, and of course, your time with us. If there is anything that I didn't say that you wanted to bring up before we close, any last words, I'm here for it. Thanks so much for inviting me on. It was a real pleasure to get to talk to you about all this. And if folks are interested, they're interested in finding my work, find me on Twitter at Report by Wilson. And you can find my newsletter on Substack. If you go to radicalreports.substack.com, there's a freed and paid version of the Substack if you want to subscribe. So for those that are, are listening, I'd be grateful for either one of those. 
it always seems like there's so much more <laughs> that we can talk about. Even though that we're talking about some subjects that can get pretty heavy, I think it's important to be able to talk about these things and really dig into them and digest them and unpack everything. There's just so much information out there for people. I think it's important to kind of take a minute and really talk about what all these things mean and to get a deeper understanding of them. Because in many ways, the things that we talked about today, they can affect people in their everyday lives, whether it's extremists trying to subvert the democratic processes on in elections, whether it's state or local elections, to extremist violence that could be affecting themselves or their neighbors. Maybe you're not a trans person, but maybe your neighbor is. You know, maybe you go to a Christian church, but maybe friends of yours go to a synagogue down the street. It's important to understand these things because it's not just abstract, right? This is happening to real people that live in your community. And if you're like me, if you're, you know, white, cisgendered, heterosexual male, and you have the benefit of essentially every privilege that you can, it's incumbent upon you to do what you can to stand up to these various types of fascism and really put yourself out there. Because to use your podcast name, you can't refuse and resist fascism unless you have everybody working together in a coalition to really push back against it. I recommend that people read the 538 article on the real-life impact of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The report that they utilized from We Count was released October 28th. The report details that at least 10,000 fewer abortions have occurred because of Roe v. Wade. These numbers are just the early warning signal. And I recommend that people read the full report on the implications of the early months since the overturn of Roe, the Dobbs decision. And I've linked to the article, which links to the full report in the show notes. Forced motherhood is female enslavement. This must never be accepted or accommodated to. Legal abortion on demand and without apology everywhere. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. We want to hear from you, share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests or lend a skill. Tweet me at Sam B. Goldman or drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org. Thanks, Harold, for writing me this week. Or leave a voicemail by visiting anchor.fm forward slash refuse dash fascism and hitting the message button. Want to support the show? Awesome. It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe so you never miss an episode. When you share this, you are helping change the way people think that prevents them from taking necessary action. You help people look at uncomfortable truths and act with daring. Together, we're forging understanding and relationships aimed at preventing the consolidation of fascism. So chip in to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. We have no sponsors. We count on you. You can donate by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting the donate button. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks as well to incredible volunteers who do transcripts for each episode. Be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be back next Sunday. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Thank you.